see, that's, again, it's weird that I own four Australians. I bought one Australia. It's actually in Philly on tour, and I think the other two came from Harvey's basement. The album I recommended was Australia, but all his records are great. Yeah, no one knows about this dude. Like, he's one of those guys where you find someone else that's into it. They're excited. It's like a little Australia. It's club. <laughs> I mean, you know what band he was in, right? Uh, he, yeah, he was in uh, Australia. It's right. And I yep. learned that on an episode of our podcast at one point. <laughs> yeah, he's on a few of the albums we've done. Yeah. Well, I'm going to spend the next, like, three hours tonight trying to figure out who this Australia is. <laughs> Welcome to I'd Buy That for a Dollar, a podcast about inexpensive, common, and underappreciated records that are waiting to be rediscovered. I'm your host, Sean Hartman, and I'm a drum, he's a drum, she's a drum, they're a drum, we're all drums, hey. (laughs) Wow. Good callback. Thank you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Good burger callback. And reference to, who was it that was like, everything's a drum? Uh, that would be Olatunji. Oh. <laughs> cool. The, the artists we're featuring today. Cool. Ever heard of him, bro? Uh, yeah. I was so inspired by him. I'm co-host Jeremy, by the way. And I know I just put out an album, but I was inspired by this album so much, I had to put out another album. It's called Banjos of Lust. <laughs> oh, my goodness. What does it sound like? Bad. It's really bad. <laughs> Just some horny banjos. <laughs> yeah. Oh, okay. Gross. Yeah, I just, I'll never be thirsty again. Set the stage for you, Peter. There you, <laughs> there you go. Well, I am co-host Peter Cook, and I was out there painting on the old woodshed when a can of black paint, it fell on my head. I went down to scrub and rub, but I had to sit in back of the tub. Cost a quarter. Half price. Cool. <laughs> nice. I don't Do you know what do you know what that's from? No. Bob Dylan, I shall be free. Oh wow. I do didn't you expect know, that. Do you know why I would reference that song? Because he references Ola Tunji in it. Correct. This I, much I did know. Yeah, there you go. I did, I thought I should explain that now. I, I thought making a big reveal about it later might not really pay off. I think if you would have done it through your nose a little more, I might have recognized it. But <laughs> Yeah, if I had gone for a Dylan impersonation. Yeah. You yeah. still can. It's not too late. <laughs> this would be the second time on the podcast that I've uh, been told to modi- into a- <laughs> modify my Dylan impersonation. <laughs> the last time was on the Phil Oaks episode many, many moons ago. Wow. Well, I brought Drums of Passion, Ola Tunji. I'm going to throw on a song that I feel like if you don't enjoy this, you probably don't have a soul, but you probably won't like Ola Tunji either. If you don't, wow. if you don't have a soul? <laughs> yeah. What year is this album? I saw a few different dates for it. It was recorded in 59. It looks like it was released in 60. Okay. 
Okay. I had read that it was released in February of 1960, so very early. And I th- we've had other albums where when they release that close to a year changeover, there seems to be some debate as to when it actually came out. Right, right. Yeah. I mean, there was probably like advanced promo copies in late 59 for the radios or something. So maybe some people first heard it in 59. Who knows? True. I guess in my mind, it seems like such a bigger gap when it's a decade change. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, here's Kiakia. And it is side B, track one. All right. to report that i thoroughly enjoyed that song so by jeremy's standards apparently i have a soul you passed the soul test yeah peter awesome you have a soul over there uh, apparently i do wow That's i was three I was, for three i was never sure until now yeah <laughs> yeah this is the litmus test for sure mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah that is catchy as hell in my opinion and it's got like kind of what we might call gang vocals of like, you know, a bunch of people yelling the same melody and the drums in that track while being kind of complicated felt like not like in other places in this record where it's very complicated and it's just hard to like follow for people not used to that. It was just drums and vocals, right? Yeah. Yeah, this I believe this whole album is just drums and vocals. Yeah. I did check this out in advance, but I was like making dinner and doing laundry again, not fully, not fully immersed in it while it's still enjoying it. But I failed to take note of that until now that it's 
yeah, just drums and vocals. Yeah, straight up. And it works. It feels full. Agreed. Yeah, and part of it is you're getting the mix of the room sounds and the closer mic drums and everything, especially with the, the gang vocals, like Jeremy said. There's just so much going for this record aesthetically. There's, you know, the rhythm that makes you want to move around and can be challenging to find sometimes but it's always still there there's something just like very pure about these traditional sounds and it's it's kind of hypnotic too you can really get lost listening to this record when you give it your full attention yeah i'm glad i'm finally doing that now right here before our very listeners (laughs) some genuine reacts here is this your first time hearing this peter well like i said it just i had previewed it while doing other things and was not fully focused on it. Yeah, but it, before this. Oh, but yeah, no, I wasn't at all familiar with Olatunji except by name. Yeah. I kn- I heard this a while back, enjoyed it and would play it occasionally and then like forgot about it for many years until Sean Hardbargain Hartman sent me a little care package with it in it and I was like, "Oh yeah, this record." So, I was amped for him to bring it back on my radar. Nice. Well, I'm amped for you to tell me even more about Olatunji. This is someone that I've loved for a long time and been selling his records to people. Definitely one that I've recommended to many people over the years of being a record dealer. Yeah. This, I think one interesting thing about this to me is this is... I mean, this is around the same time as the whole Exotica thing, correct? Or this been yeah. a little later in that scene? No, this would have been pretty much right in the middle of it. Right in the middle. But this is like the real deal. This mm-hmm. isn't like trying to capture like an image that Westerners have in their minds. This is the the actual thing. Yeah, mm-hmm. and it was very popular. Yeah, this <laughs> album hit number 13 on the billboard charts and this was Olatunji's first album he put out so it was very popular very cool yeah I, I did think about that distinction of the time period that you know this would have coincided with exotica but this would have been the real deal versus something artificial yeah it's kind of interesting and i would imagine a lot of record buyers at that time probably wouldn't have known the difference between what's real and what's made for them. Yeah, fabricated. (laughs) Fabricated. (laughs) Well, maybe they didn't know that up until listening to this record, because I feel like if you were buying this album, especially if you were, you know, buying this album as like a white person who wasn't familiar with this culture, it would have been kind of shocking how authentic and minimalist it is. And I can understand how people were excited by this new sound. Yeah. So how did Olatunji come to find his way into the ears of Americans in the late 1950s, early 1960s, Jeremy? Well, <laughs> let's go on back to the beginning. Michael Babatunde Olatunje, born April 7th, 1927, in Ajido, Nigeria. I pre-apologize for all the things I'm going to say wrong, but... Uh, I'm, I'm going to say them wrong, sorry. Are, are we at least saying his name correctly? Yes, I looked <laughs> up his name. 
and listen to some pronunciation videos yeah. <laughs> to try and not be a total fool. Yeah. I was hoping we'd at least get that right. And I might've even <laughs> said it wrong once or twice already. I'll follow your guy's lead. Deal. His father died two months before he was born. And his father was going to be chieftain of their village. He was a fisherman. And as a result, uh, Baba Tunde was brought up. He was kind of groomed from an early age to be a chieftain and was seen as the literal reincarnation of his father. His name is like the coming or the returning of the father, I believe. So, yeah, no pressure. No pressure there. <laughs> he realized in his early teens he did not want to be a chieftain. <laughs> and <laughs> he applied for a Rotary International Scholarship that he saw in like a Reader's Digest. And he won the scholarship. So in 1950, he moved to Atlanta, Georgia. He attended Morehouse College in Atlanta. Got a BA in political science and then went on to New York University to study public administration. You know, I had read some comments from him about his earliest years in America when he was attending the college, and he said he was shocked at how little his classmates knew about Africa and got just some of the wildest questions from fellow college students like, Is it true that all Africans have tails? Yeah, and like, like do you do you all sleep in trees? Like do yeah. lions just roam the streets? Just like people had no fucking clue what Africa was like in the late 1950s America. Yeah, and that became a big part of his like life goal was to share the culture of Africa, like the actual culture and actual music of it and kind of stomp out the ignorance around it. And he also, when he came to America, it became very obvious to him that segregation in America was nearly identical in function to colonialism in Africa, where he was from, which Nigeria was under British rule until 1960, right around the time this album came out. Wow. He also... He was a social activist already in college. He, a couple of years before Rosa Parks started her bus protests, had a kind of different type of protest where him and some fellow students would show up in their traditional African clothing and they would be allowed to sit anywhere they want on the bus because they're not African-Americans. They're seen as, you know... They're not from this country. They don't know our rules, but they would just keep showing up on the bus, sitting where they want in these clothes, and uh, eventually the bus driver caught wind of it and was like, you can't do that, and they just did it. <laughs> it was also in college that he began performing live music. He was doing private functions as just a thing to make money on the side and help pay for his college. And it was while doing these that A&R man John Hammond oh, yeah. saw him and was like, whoa, you are 
the real deal and extremely good at what you do. So he eventually signed him to Columbia. John Hammond seemed to have a good ear for the real thing. True. He signed the boss and I think Nina Simone. Is that right? Well, Aretha Franklin. Aretha Franklin. Yeah. Uh, Josh White, I believe. Yeah. Yeah. Dylan. All kinds of people. Yeah. So then uh, Olatunji goes on to record this album, his very first album, Drums of Passion. So let's get to another cut. We'll do, let's do Odunde. Odunde, Odunde. We're talking side A, track three. Voices on that one really stand out to me uh, because of I like all the space that the just the drums being the only instrumental accompaniment allow for, and then you know that those harmonies, yeah, so rich and uh, with you know nothing else occupying the sonic space, they just fill everything up. It's beautiful. Yeah, they just hang out there. Which, uh, you know, I know with uh, recording technology, that's something that happens is you get so many different instruments in a mix that things start to steal from the voice. and Yeah. yeah. And so, yeah, just allowing those voices to be in their natural element. <laughs> yeah. Love it. It's great. I'm sure we'll talk more about some of the other singers on this. You want to just do it now? We can just do it now. We could. 
Highlight them. Spotlight you want to hear me butcher like 10 names in a row? Okay, let's do it. <laughs> Get it out of the way. So on the back of the record, it lists three other drummers and then a bunch of people as singers. But online, it seemed to list most of these people drum and sing at the same time. So doing all that, you got Baba Hawthorne Bay. You have someone... Labeled as Montego Joe, but then in parentheses it says Roger Sanders. Yeah, that name I I feel like that player is on like other jazz recordings, like or is on jazz recordings, I should say. Right. I uh, don't know that person. <laughs> That's okay. <laughs> he yeah he did a handful of other records with Olatunji, and he's also on records by Nina Simone, Willis Jackson, and others. Nice. You got Taiwo Duval, Ida BB Caps, then the Derby Sisters, who, from my reading, they were the ones who brought most of the musicians for this session in. But that is Afuave Derby and Aquasaba Derby, Helen Haynes, also, Dolores Oyinka Parker, Ruby. Waraola Pryor, Barbara Gordon, Helena Walker, and Louis Young. So I didn't find much about most of those people. Mm -hmm. I had read that there was an assumption that all of his players were people that like came here from Africa with him, when in fact they were all U.S. citizens that yeah. he got into his band at this point. But yeah, he wasn't... At, at least at this point, he wasn't pulling from like big name session players or anything. It was actually people who knew how to play traditional African drums and play these styles authentically. Yeah, he was the only one in the group born in Africa, from my understanding. Mm -hmm. So he goes on from here. He is both playing on like TV shows and playing big shows. But he's also continuing his work in social activism, social justice. And he toured around the American South with Martin Luther King Jr. And was with him on the March on Washington as well. He maintained a close relationship with Malcolm X. And yeah, it was just, he was a part of these movements and there in them when they were happening. Yeah, he was mentioned in that aforementioned Bob Dylan song alongside Martin Luther King Jr. Yeah. He also, from my understanding, would open his shows by just like kind of giving a, a talk basically on social justice before he would even play the show. And that's how he started all of his shows. So this was a part of his identity. And yeah, as I said, like it was his life goal to present and preserve traditional African music and song and language yeah. and folklore. Yeah, I noticed just in reading about him a strong emphasis on education in general throughout his life. Yeah, and that led him in 1965 to open the Ola Tunji Center for African Culture in Harlem, where he gave classes on African language, music, dance, folklore, and history. 
and would have performances and had some pretty big name artists play there. He had Yusuf Latif, Pete Seeger, John Coltrane, and John Coltrane was a big fan. Yeah, and they were, it seems they became good friends. Yeah, he played with John Coltrane. He also performed with Cannonball Adderley, Max Roach. He performed with Stevie Wonder, Quincy Jones, and Richie Havens, all eyed by that alumni. Yeah. And later on in his career, Mickey Hart. From the Grateful Dead? From the Grateful Dead. (laughs) Yeah. Whom uh, Olatunji, while he was, after this record had come out and he had gotten big, he would tour college campuses a lot. And that's where Mickey Hart I met him, I think it was some type of workshop where Mickey also like played some drums and Olatunji was like, hey, this guy knows what he's doing. And just like that offhand comment, Mickey Hart says inspired him to continue playing drums and like drove him to the level of success he ended up obtaining. Interesting. Yeah, and Mickey Hart kind of was the one that was responsible for revitalizing Olatunji's career in the mid-80s. That's true, because in 1966, right around the same time he's opening the center, he's dropped from Columbia Records, and he... What the heck? Yeah. He put out five total albums with them. He would continue recording some albums, but didn't have anywhere near the commercial success of this first album, Drums of Passion. He went on to teaching, he was running the center for a while, but he had kind of fallen out of like the mainstream eye until the mid-80s when Mickey Hart ran into him and was like, hey, you should come open some shows for my band, The Grateful Dead. (laughs) (laughs) So he did, and he also helped collaborate on Mickey Hart's Planet Drum Project, which came out in 1990. Yeah, and Mickey produced like two different records for Olatunji as well. Yeah, because Olatunji, this whole time, he's still recording music. Um, I mean, that's just, it seems like that's who he is. Like he wasn't going to stop doing that. And he continued mm-hmm. doing that up until his death. Yeah. You know, aren't there a number of albums of his that bear the name Drums of Passion? And, oh, and, then, yeah. like, and then like a subtitle? Yeah, there's a few that kind of call back to that probably trying to re-tap into that success or that familiarity people might have. Very popular album, and it seems it's never really gone out of print. Yeah, that's what I was reading. It's sold millions of copies and never gone out of print, and is still in print today. And also, apparently, Olatunji was not paid for that record for the first 20 years until he finally got a lawyer to regain the rights to that album. Yeah, that's true. (laughs) I'm I don't know if this would coincide with Clive Davis's time at Columbia. Mm, I wonder. <laughs> Just had to get a Clive. Just had to get a little rip on Clive. Yep. <laughs> so, yeah, he recorded through the 90s, and around 2000, he moves out to Big Sur, California, one of the most beautiful places in the world. And yeah. he's yeah. still teaching some, and... But he's like dealing with some pretty serious medical complications due to diabetes. 
and ends up passing away in 2003. He was just a day shy of 76. Mm. He released a total of 17 albums over his career, some live DVDs, some like instructional how-to for learning African drumming. Always on the education side of things. Yeah, that's... You can find that African drumming tutorial on YouTube, by the way. I watched a little chunk of it preparing for it. It's pretty awesome. Did you learn? Well, it's great because, like, not only is he teaching you how to play drums, but he's just, like, tying it into his general philosophies of life the whole time, too, and, like, how to be relaxed and quiet your mind and everything. It's like, this this rules. I kind of love this. Yeah, there's... He, like, came up with some new method of teaching drums based on, like, the different sounds you can get out of it. I didn't really understand. I'm, I'm not a drummer. Yeah, it was. It's like a phonetic system of talking about drum beats that the sounds mimic the sounds that the, the drum makes, but is also based on phonetics from the Yoruba language that he was raised on. Yeah, which he spoke. Yeah, that's probably a good thing to point out too. He knew a few different languages, including he learned English after moving to America. Which is, yeah, this dude. He's a, he's like a professor in my mind. He's a professor who happened to make a bunch of albums. Yeah, I saw him described several times as a musicologist. That makes sense. Let's uh, rip another cut. Rip that cut. Yeah, what do you got next? Let's do uh, a song that was covered, actually, by a few different artists. Jingo Loba, which Santana... Mm. I've recorded a version of and made probably more famous than anything Olatunji did, Um, but was also recorded by Serge Gainsbourg and Fatboy Slim later on. So I watched a brief interview with Santana about this, and he said that hearing Olatunji completely changed his direction in music. He said up at that point, he was just completely obsessed with the blues and nothing else, and just like stumbled onto an Olatunji concert while walking around and just like from that point completely changed the stuff he was interested in, the stuff he ended up playing and was arguably a big influence on what was eventually the sound of the Santana band. Yeah. Yeah. I can hear that influence on the drumming in Santana. Mm hmm. Oh, for sure. Well, especially because like the, the drumming here also has a lot of similarities to some of the Afro Cuban influences that Santana obviously had going on, like Tito Puente and guys like that. Very cool detail. Cool. Let's rip that track. All right. Side A, track four.
one's got a little more energy and pep to it and has some uh, pretty wild rhythms going on mm-hmm. at some points, too. And that was the hit, correct? Like, that was the actual single off this record? Yeah. Yeah. You can tell it's got that big single energy, you know? It's got... <laughs> I'm sure that's what they were saying in 1960 when this came out. It's a bop. Truly a bopper, which apparently it was because it, you know, was a single multiple times, including not so long ago with Fat Boy Slim. So, (laughs) yeah. The Fat Boy Slim bump. Fat Boy Slim bump. Well, Sean, do you have any similar recommended albums for us? I do have a few similar recommended albums. I got four of them, actually, so let's talk about it. Do you guys know the first U.S. musician to hire Olatunji in his backing band after Olatunji's recording career started? Ooh, I should know this, but I don't. My guess would be John Coltrane, but I don't think that's right. I don't know if there's any recorded evidence of them playing together. I mean, Coltrane uh, recorded a song in tribute to Olatunji, but I don't think they ever actually... I think they like played shows together, but I don't know if it's been recorded. I'm drawing a blank. It was Herbie Man. Oh! oh. <laughs> <laughs> of course it was Herbie Man. Literally before anybody else, Herbie Man, in 1960, puts out a record with Olatunji on it. That's the Herbie Man Afro Jazz Sextet plus four trumpets, The Common Ground. I don't own that one. I listened to a few tracks, and it's really, really good. As always, you know, it's hard to find a bad Herbie Man record. He's at the forefront of the trends, and love that guy. Next recommendation, another artist that was instrumental in bringing these traditional African sounds and influences to a Western audience, Miriam Makeba, self-titled 1960. Hard to talk about one of these artists without mentioning the other. So another Famous early African musician, South African this time, Hugh Masekela. Mm-hmm. Um, he's got some earlier records in this, but the earliest one that's going to be easy to find is called The Emancipation of Hugh Masekela from 1966. It's great. Again, very hard to find a bad record by that guy. And then a final suggestion, another record that Olatunji played on, Exuma, Snake, from 1972. If you're not familiar, Exuma was a Bahamian artist who did some really interesting kind of experimental psych folk at times mixed with traditional sounds, and uh, his records are fascinating and well worth a listen. I don't know that one. That sounds right up my alley. Yeah, that's Exuma. E-X-U-M-A. Look him up. Exuma. All right. Here's a question for you, Sean. Mm Mm-hmm. How common are the none such explorer series to find like used copies of of those authentic world music recordings just keep going up in value in general and there's always a subset of collectors that will just grab them as quickly as they can so if like they're if they're marked at full price in a record store they're going to be expensive but they're one of those things that can be easily overlooked in a dollar bin sometimes You know, if the place isn't going to pay attention to their classical and world music and stuff like that, it might just get put in a box in the corner. You never know. I've had good experiences with the few of those that I've picked up and know. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, and then, you know, the popularity of Olatunji was a big reason why there was suddenly a market for things like that. 
You know who else Ola Tunji played with? Who's that? I'm looking right in your eyes, Peter. I just oh. want you to draw it from my brain into yours because you know this answer, Peter. <laughs> As to another person that Ola Tunji played with? Yeah, he's on their record. Starts with a T. We used to draw a connection to him almost every episode. Wait, Tupac? Tupac Shakur. <laughs> Wait, did they sample him or did he actually like play you know, on a session or something? I think he played on a session from what I can tell on the Tupac song, Wake Me When I'm Free, which that was the, like after Tupac died one, right? Yeah, there's, there's yeah, more material that he's released uh, since dying than while he was alive. Yeah. And I believe that is a posthumous. Posthumous. Yeah. So unlikely that they were in the recording studio at the same time, but True. still cool. Yeah. That shows you the reach, the generational <laughs> span of, of Olatunji. Yeah. Oh, and I wanted to make a quick note, too, about the his relationship with Coltrane. Um, Coltrane regularly donated to the Olatunji Center, or what, what was it called again? Yeah, the Olatunji Center for African Studies. Right. He said that Coltrane donated $250 a month, and also Coltrane's last concert was at a benefit for the center right before he died. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah, they were they were very close. And, you know, I just wanted to run over a thought that I had while listening to Ola Tunji Records today and getting ready for this. So I'm also starting to do some early prep for some Latin jazz on a Ghetto Barbieri episode that we'll be doing in a few weeks. And something I was kind of thinking about that's similar between these two styles is it's interesting when a traditional music style from another country, or especially another continent, influences the U.S. And it seems like in music history, a lot of times it will influence that genre over multiple points and continue to change it, which I think is fascinating and definitely applies here. Like, these traditional African drums are part of the basis that eventually creates jazz in, you know, New Orleans in the U.S. So it's it's interesting that he's then coming back at different points and bringing this traditional sound into the jazz world. Because as soon as Olatunji comes in and has this big hit record, so many jazz people are suddenly very interested in having these more traditional African drums behind their records and exploring these influences. And I just think that's fascinating to see that happen and how the, the cross-pollination continues to make these genres grow. Yeah. Cool thought, Sean. Yeah. I'm fine with leaving it there if we have nothing else to say. <laughs> I don't have anything smarter to say than that, so... <laughs> <laughs> All right, cool. What track are we going to go out on? Well... We'll go out on Oyin Momo Adu, which is Sweet as Honeybee. I probably should have said the translations of the other songs whilst I announced them, but... Too late. It's too late. You have to figure it out yourself now. (laughs) We want to remind listeners that uh, you can always, if you want more content than what we offer on a weekly basis, you can always... Check out our Patreon over at patreon.com slash I'd buy that podcast. We have many, many bonus episodes that we have recorded at this point, and we now have our our sweet mixes. Yep. The monthly mixes that we're making over there as well, in lieu of the Spotify playlists. And so yeah, 
If you want to check that out, once again, patreon.com slash I'd buy that podcast. Thank you for your support. And this has been another episode of I'd buy that. For a dollar, my name is Peter Cook. My name is Jeremy Ruggles. And I'm Sean Hartman. Thank <laughs> you.